This episode of The Candid Frame is brought to you by the Charcoal Book Club. Their carefully curated selections reflects the best in contemporary photography and all for a reasonable price. And they are delivered directly to your doorstep each month. They offer free shipping to the U.S., Canada, and the U.K. It's subsidized elsewhere. It's a great way to begin or expand your photo library. Join the club at charcoalbookclub.com today. And remember to use the promo code THECANDIDFRAME at checkout. The Internet has replaced magazines as a source of photography education. Rather than waiting each month for an issue, you have camera reviews and how-to instruction at any time. And just a few keystrokes away, it's very convenient. Say what you might about old media. A level of vetting and curation went into each issue. I know, because I was in the industry for about two decades. So, in our modern times, you have to do that part yourself. And you're not guaranteed to find photographers who possess that special combination of talent, teaching skills, and a sense of integrity or ethics. A large social media following and snappy editing skills doesn't guarantee any of that. I have followed Nick Carver for several years now. He's a wonderful photographer and a great teacher, though he might not call himself that. He promotes himself and his work without becoming another pitchman through his website and his popular YouTube channel. It's a quality I really very much appreciate. His thoughtful approach to both the natural and urban landscape inspires a slower, more thoughtful approach to photography that I think that many of us can benefit from. This is Ibarian X, and welcome back to The Candid Frame. I don't know how long I've been following your, your YouTube channel, but I've, I've, I've enjoyed what I've seen. And uh, you've been on my radar for, for a while, and I thought I'd finally get around oh, to really? inviting and having you on the, uh, on the show. So thanks for, uh, for coming on board. My pleasure. Thanks for following. I didn't know you had been uh, watching my videos for a while. That's pretty cool. Oh yeah, yeah. I'm not. I'm not the best in terms of putting in comments, but <laughs> I, I will to hit the thumbs up. I'm not the best at replying to comments, so that's that's quite all right. <laughs> so I, I just watched the video that you did in uh, um, Spain in Andalusia. Yeah. And um, the, the the thing you said at the very beginning it, it, that at first you thought it was. Uh, a hoax or a fraud, and I can very well relate to that because I've gotten, you know, messages for opportunities, and I go, no, <laughs> and then come to find out it was actually true. I was like, oh, okay. Yeah, yeah. This one, I was so convinced it was a scam. I actually deleted the first email they sent me, <laughs> and luckily, luckily they they emailed me again. Um, you know two weeks later or something like that. They're like, no, this is the real deal. So I read the, the proposal a little more closely. And then I actually replied, thanks, but I'm not the right photographer for this. I'm sure you're looking for someone who's gonna take a lot of pictures and kind of like a traditional Instagram travel influencer. So I was basically yeah. replied with thanks, but no thanks. I'm not the right guy for the job. <laughs> so I, I gave them every opportunity to not hire me. and. Luckily, they were persistent and and they they wanted me because I very well could have blown that whole thing for me. Certainly tried. <laughs> and I, from what I heard in the in the video, that uh, your wife helped uh, helped a little bit there. Yeah, because I. So when I got that the email, 
not the one that I deleted, but the one following up and then a couple more where they were getting pretty persistent. I, I told my wife, I'm like, hey, this is kind of crazy, but I might be going to Spain in two and a half weeks or three weeks. And she's like, what? I'm like, yeah, I don't know if it's the real deal or not, but uh, this and I told her about the whole thing. And mm-hmm. she's like a master at finding out anything on the internet, anybody's name I need to find out, what they do for a living. She, like she finds it, I don't know how. So she's like, I'll go to work on it. And she, she spent some time just researching the ad agency to see if they were legit. Uh, okay. And the, the organization that was supposedly hire them, are they the, the real organization for the tourism board? Like she just did some cursory things, she's like, yeah, they're like an award-winning agency. They seem to be the real deal. So, you know, give them, uh, you know, give them an opportunity. And then she told me, you know, don't talk yourself out of a job. They, they seem to want to hire you. So, so let them hire you. <laughs> oh. Yeah. Good for you. Good for you. Yeah. Have a spouse like that rather than one who just wants to get rid of you. <laughs> At least she wanted to come with me more than anything. But didn't work out on this trip. <laughs> yeah, I, as I said, I've been following your work, and um, I like I like your content. I, I, I love your sense of humor. I'm always it's a very rare thing that when I'm watching a, a photo YouTube channel where I'm laughing out loud. Um, so <laughs> well, I, I that's part that. of my enjoyment of you. I try I try to not take any of it too seriously. I think, especially in the well, photog- photography thing. world, there's a lot of kind of over seriousness about the importance of photos and photography and photographers and everything. So trying to not fall into that. Yeah. There's far too much earnestness. Yeah. It's a very, it's very just pictures. Perfect word for it. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I'm, I'm glad that that has been appreciated by, uh, by viewers. I mean, to try and be funny in a video, it can be embarrassing as much as it is, uh, received well because if, if stuff falls flat it, yeah. you kind of come off as an ass so it's always a little uh it was a it was difficult for me to do in the beginning because i didn't think anyone would get my sense of humor or anything but i've been pleasantly surprised at how many people appreciate it and i guess it's kind of like you said it's kind of lacking in the photography youtube world yeah because as i've learned on doing this show it's so much being comfortable with yourself is a real key to that because uh, as soon as someone puts out a persona I'm, I'm i'm out yeah you know i was just like no i i cannot listen to you for for eight or 15 minutes yeah and you're being shmarmy and yeah. all that you know yeah, zooming into the into the lens and just doing a bunch of wacky stuff in order to try and hold my attention and i mean if you if you have to do all that work more than likely you don't really have anything interesting to say yeah that's kind of how i was feeling about it too because i i have a very uh strong paranoia that i'm going to lose everybody's interest in my videos so i try and keep the pace up but um Mm -hmm. i get really annoyed by videos where there's a lot of i don't know visual tricks and sound tricks and stuff to try and like keep your attention like we're a bunch of infants that need to have keys dangled in front of us otherwise we're going to stop watching (laughs) it's like if you're talking about something reasonably interesting people will will keep listening i mean the the fact that 
podcasts like this are so popular, you know, these long form conversations that aren't planned ahead of time and they do so well. There's obviously mm -hmm. people kind of craving people being real and not, not treating them like infants that need keys dangling in front of them. Right. <laughs> and photographically, what I enjoy um, about, about your videos is um, the experience of, of learning how you see because one of the things that I really enjoy is the subtlety of your eye. Mm. Um, when you're looking around a scene and how you're paying, atten paying attention, not just, I mean, you, you come up with these compositions, but you're often paying attention to the subtle changes in light, like an interior light from a building and then the way the light is, you know, raking across the, the, the landscape. And, and, it's, and it's very subtle. And that's something that I pay attention to but I'm doing it very differently as a street photographer. I'm not. Mm. I'm not taking the kind of time that you're you're taking to make your images. But the very same things that you're paying attention to are the same things that I'm paying attention to. Hmm. And that's something that I don't often see uh, illustrated, discussed, or even shown on most of the content that that's out there. So that's something I really greatly appreciate um, your videos when you're you know when you're on a uh, when you're shooting, you're behind the scenes yeah. of making a photograph. Yeah, I certainly have a luxury to get that nitpicky about stuff just because I'm shooting stationary subjects and inanimate objects. I'm always amazed by good street photographers that are, I mean, you must have to make split decision uh, or, you know, decisions on that stuff in a split second where I kind of have the luxury of like analyzing it for a little while, but you have to keep up with the decisive moment and everything too. That seems so, so much more difficult to me, <laughs> but I, I know it's such an important part of all types of photography. You must be factoring in those same things. It just must be on a much faster pace than what I'm, I'm dealing with. Yeah. But, but I think that that really kind of speaks to the idea of creating photographs that are a, a reflection of who you are. Mm -hmm. that otherwise what I see a lot of in street photography or landscape or, you know, any kind of photography is, is a lot of mimicry. And so people sort of um, replicate the, the grand picture, mm -hmm. right? But the, but the small things that make a photograph really exceptional, personal, that has that sort of spark that is completely arresting that comes from paying attention to those really small subtle things otherwise you know you just kind of everything starts looking the same yeah and uh, especially for s someone like you who, who favors landscape photography whether it's urban or, or natural landscape um it's it's at the that's at the heart of it and how Talk to me about sort of developing that awareness that that it was the small things, the, the rather than the big things, that help you to create sort of a distinctive voice with respect to what you were creating with your camera. Well, you know, you said earlier about um, being comfortable with yourself to be a good, you know, podcast host or YouTuber or whatever it is. Um, and I think that's really important in photography too. And that took me a while to um, be okay with how I like to approach photos. Um, because 
I'm nitpicky in in life. Uh, I if I'm building something, I'm I have a hyper attention to detail. I'm making sure everything is perfect that nobody is ever going to notice or ever going to see, but I'm going to notice that it's not done right or it's not uh, done perfectly. And I do that in every other aspect of my life because I have a bit of the OCD or something, or it's just a hyper organization or uh, even editing my videos. I'm just like, I'm, I'm going back and forth between adding two frames this way or that. And is that the right place to cut it? And it's this obsessive thing that I think ultimately is not super healthy uh, when it gets taken too far. But I eventually, I think just settled into that with my photography where I I let myself um, be that nitpicky with my photos. And I stopped putting as much pressure on myself to take uh, a lot of photos or to take photos that being that nitpicky is not conducive to. Um, You know, I've always gravitated towards nature photography from the beginning. Um, I do much more urban stuff now, urban scenes and everything. But like, I I wanted to be a wildlife photographer from the get-go. I didn't realize it at the time, but looking back on it now, my personality type doesn't fit with that. I can't be the kind of nitpicky, obsessive, composition guy that I am with wildlife photography stuff moves too fast it uh, it's a different approach you have to um, take mm-hmm. more photos than I like to take you know there this is a long-winded way to say there's types of photography that I was trying to pursue that were not a good match for how I am personality wise And once I kind of started to let go of what I think I should be taking pictures of or what I want my portfolio to look like or what what type of photographer I want to be um, and just started taking pictures that felt good when I took them, they kind of let me scratch that itch of being hyper, you know, uh, nitpicky about everything and, and kind of letting my OCD run in the photo. I started creating much better photos because it was what I'm good at. And that's where photographing buildings really came in because there's so many ways to get that nitpicky when photographing a building or an urban scene that you kind of can't, there's limitations to it in a lot of other types of photography, like whether the subject is too fleeting so you don't have the time to get that nitpicky or it's a landscape where there's only so many different ways you can get nitpicky about it because, you know, a lot of scenes, there's an obvious best angle on it and you're not dealing with multiple planes and multiple lines and perspective distortion quite as much. So um, photographing city scenes and buildings and stuff has really allowed me to be the nitpicky photographer that I, I want to be. Um, mm-hmm. And I've started creating the work I like the most as a result of that. You know, that, that moment of recognition to discover that the way that you think you should be working isn't working. And then you have to move to a method and approach that works for you. That's a difficult thing for a lot of people to do, because I think part of the resistance to doing that is that you're beginning by emulating somebody else, not just what the photographs look, looks like, but their approaches. Mm-hmm. 
And then when you start finding what works for you, oftentimes you're not seeing that reflected as, as abundantly or as obviously. And so it's, it's a time that you really question, oh, am I doing it right? Mm-hmm. Is this the right path to, to go down? Because everything else has been proven to me. And even though I know it doesn't work for me, everybody else is doing it that way. Yeah. So am I making a mistake? Yeah. So what sort of helped you to sort of make that leap, make that transition so that you could really become who you wanted to be as a photographer? Uh, the biggest thing was not looking at other people's photos, which I, I, I bring this up often and I hate to bring it up because I, I really do. I don't like to promote this in the photography community because I, I don't think it's the best approach for everybody. But for me, I found that uh, not viewing other people's work was the best medicine for that. Um, and I, I'm pretty disciplined about that now. But what's, what's funny is that I still battle exactly what you're talking about of like trying to you end up emulating other photographers and thinking this is how you should do it and start questioning every everything you're doing about your process. This happened a week and a half ago. I met with a, a photographer um, much older guy and uh he's been shooting forever way more experienced than me really nice guy and uh he wanted to share some of his pictures with me so i was looking through his portfolio and like the every picture that went by i was getting a deeper and deeper sinking feeling of like his work's so damn good and like it's it's everything i want my work to be but the way mm-hmm. he's getting these pictures is a completely different approach it literally would not work with how I like to take pictures. Um, but I still spun out for like three or four days. I was just <laughs> questioning everything. I started looking at different cameras to buy that's going to make it easier for me to take pictures the way he takes pictures. Oh, like just a complete death spiral. And I've gone through enough of those death spirals now to know that it's a death spiral and I just need to wait out the storm because I'll come out the other side confident about my process again. Um, but in the moment, it really sucks because I start questioning everything. Like, why am I doing large format? It's so slow. I can't take as many pictures as I want. Why am I shooting film? Who cares? It's getting scanned anyway. I start like going through all these things and getting to this point where I'm just doubting everything about my process. And I'm, you know, 24 years into this, I feel like any other time over the past five to 10 years, I'm pretty confident about my process now. I know what works for me. I know what's gonna let me be uh, nitpicky with my compositions. I know the right tools for me now. But all it takes is seeing someone else's work that I think is so much freaking better than mine. And especially if it's, mm-hmm. it's, if it's in a similar vein of what I like to shoot. Um, like this guy's pictures were a lot of dusk building photos, which I love doing. and. He had a very different look to it. Um, His higher contrast and the shadows were darker and all this kind of stuff. But even this late in the game, that still spins me out. So I have to do my best to not look at other people's work because I never know when I'm going to come across someone's work who puts me in that death spiral. So, yeah, I I kind of go through that when when I'm teaching or or I'm going through someone's portfolio. And it's exceptional work. And I ask them, how long have you been shooting? They go, two years. 
at that point, I, I want to strangle, strangle them and then shoot myself. Yeah. yeah that, well, I kept, one of the things that pulled me out of it with this guy is I'm like, oh, he's coming up on 70. He's been shooting for like 45 years or something like that, or, or 50 years or whatever it's been. I'm like, I, I'll get to his level when I'm in, coming up on 70. Like that was one of the things that brought me out of it. But yeah, if you come across someone, when I was teaching people one-on-one, I'd have someone come in. It's like, they barely know how to turn on their camera and their compositions are better than anything I've done and better than anything I could teach. And what can I tell them? I'm like, don't listen to any tips on composition because you already got it figured out. Just keep going with that. I'll help you with the yeah. shutter speeds and apertures and ISOs. I'll help you with that stuff. But yeah, it's frustrating. Some people, you know, take to it naturally, but also some people just, um, they're in a very similar uh, lane as me. And, mm-hmm. you know, they're shooting similar subject matter. Or they're doing it in kind of a similar way. And just the fact it didn't come out of my head, I already think it's better. But it's similar enough that I kind of want to start doing it that way. And it's like, I got that. You know, when you look at a photo that you, you've never seen before and it's amazing, you get that, that moment of magical discovery, like the first moment when you see it and it's like, you know, pow, and it's like, wow, that's an amazing photo. Yeah. You never get that on your own photos because they come out of your own brain. So it's like it, it's percolating in your brain mm. and it's forming slowly. And so when it finally comes out, it doesn't have that moment of like magical wowness. So even if someone's work is maybe not as good as mine by everyone else's judgment, I'm probably still going to think it's better because I've it, it wasn't formed in my own brain over the course of a you know, several weeks, I got that instant, like, wow factor. I have to trick myself into having those moments with my own work. (laughs) And I basically use this exercise that I I often give my students is I tell them to shoot blind. You don't look for the viewfinder. You don't look at the LCD. Mm. You see something in front of you that you're reacting to. You just jet out the camera and, and make the exposure. And what happens as a result is that because, for me, because I'm not being so controlling of the composition in the frame, usually something happens that's a surprise to me. doesn't mean that the image works completely, mm-hmm. but there's an element there that I'll see that I realize is working, and then I can sort of consciously try to incorporate that. Hmm. Um that's a as really I shoot going, going, going forward, because sometimes I, I mean, I look at a lot of my photographs and it's like my hands are clenching to the camera to the point that all color is leaving my fingers, <laughs> right? Because I'm being very exacting about what's happening at the edges of the frame. And when I do that exercise, when I do it more loosey goosey and I just like, just let the moment happen, I, I sometimes see something there that gets me excited in the way that you just described looking at somebody else's photograph. Because hmm. I see it when I've uh, taught kids to make photographs where they don't know what they should or shouldn't do. And they just do something spontaneously and I see something remarkable as a result. So it's like i am I'm been doing this too long to be able to get myself into that childish way of thinking in the moment. But that exercise helps me to sort of tap into it a little bit. Hmm. 
That's a really interesting exercise. That'd probably be really good for me. <laughs> Force me to let go a little bit. <laughs> yeah. It'd be hard yeah. for me to do. But it's well worth it. And if you're doing it digitally, you don't lose anything. Yeah, I... I, I, w- I wouldn't do that with a with a four by no, five. No, definitely but. not. Well, it's, I just got gifted a thirty five millimeter rangefinder camera. It's actually sitting over there. Um, oh, no, I'm okay. shooting a hardly any thirty five millimeter, but maybe I'll uh, I'll use that. Two birds with one stone. Get to ha- play with a new camera and try that technique because that sounds like a pretty smart technique. <laughs> yeah, it's it's a lot of fun. Hmm. Um, I just took a workshop with uh, Sam Abel couple of weeks ago and he said a really really interesting thing about the the process of making photographs Uh, um and i'm going to paraphrase greatly but every photographer gets to the point where they can make a consistently good photograph and that's the zone in which he always tries to be where he's making a good photograph well composed good use of light and he says that every once in a great while a great photograph will come from that. Hmm. But as long as he's in that zone of making a, a good photograph, um, he knows he's in the right space in order to be able to take advantage of those, of those rare moments where everything is converging at the right instant. Does he have a clear definition between a, a good photograph and a great photograph? Uh, he didn't define it, but the way I kind of took it is like, you know it when you see it? Yeah. Yeah, you know, you feel it. Yeah, I think that that was ultimately the 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 spirit in which he was talking about because it was it was not a discussion about what aesthetically is in the photograph, whether it's the light, whether it's the composition, whether it's the color contrast. It was more about the feeling, hmm. right? And I've known, I've heard you talk in, in a bunch of you, you you don't even you don't even express it verbally sometimes, but just the way I hear you talking about the moment that you're seeing you are feeling what you are seeing right Mm -hmm. i can hear the excitement in your voice you're going oh look at that and and that's a i think that's at the heart of what makes um a good photographer is being able to tap into that reaction that you have at discovering something that's playing on in front of you and then not getting so excited that you fumble fumble what you're doing with the camera Mm having the presence of mind to make all those the, those choices. Yeah, that's a good point. Um, that's a good point. I never think, I don't think too much about, I guess, because yeah, you're right. You kind of get to a point where you can pretty stably go through all the motions to make sure everything's technically going to be good. You know, exposure's good. Mm-hmm. You got the focus. You, in other words, you, you get far enough into it. You're not really throwing away any pictures anymore because you screwed up the focus or you screwed up the, the light or the metering, like those things kind of become second nature at some point, uh, almost. But, um, yeah, that, that moment of kind of knowing everything's coming together in that magical way. And, and you know, the results are going to be exciting for you in the, because in the moment you're excited about it and you can kind of tell when that magic is happening. Um, I think that's, that's the thing a lot of photographers chase in their photography. I'm certainly chasing it every time I go out and, um, yeah, it's, uh, I, I tend to associate that feeling with a, a concurrent feeling of 
not giving a shit if anyone's going to like it or not. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and uh, I, I kind of at some point started to make that connection where I, I was getting my best photos when I was uh, uh, having that feeling of kind of like, I don't really care if anyone's going to like this or not because I love it so much or I'm right. loving the process so much. And, you know, before that, before I kind of was able to get into that groove, I would have told you, yeah, I'm, I don't care what anybody thinks about my photos. I'm, I'm <laughs> taking the pictures I want to take, but I wasn't. I mean, it, there's a distinct feeling of like when you're taking a photo and you truly are okay with no one caring about the photo because you are so happy with how everything's coming together that anyone's reaction to it is, is kind of secondary. Um, mm-hmm. and it's certainly not every photo for me now. I, I still do think a lot about if, you know, people are going to like the photo. Is it going to sell well as a print? Is it going to look good in a book or anything like that? But when you have those moments of, I, I'm so happy about this photo that I'm taking and I'm so happy with how everything's going right now that doesn't matter if anyone likes it or not. Um, that's really the, the best zone to be in. Actually, I saw this, um, this Instagram story that was going around. I don't know who it was. I probably should have looked into it better, but he was a, uh, analog photographer shooting medium format out on the street at night. And he was like, he had a big smile on his face and he was talking about, you know, people always ask me why I never show the results. Cause apparently he never shows the picture he took. He just shares a video oh, of yeah. him going out and taking pictures. And he was just going on about like, you, when are you guys going to understand? It's not about the picture. It's not about the results. Look at how much fun I'm having out taking pictures right now. This is mm-hmm. what it's about. This is what it's about for me. And like, it was, it was a short clip, but he was really driving home the point of, I'm not sharing the results because it's not about the results. It's about look at how much I'm enjoying using my camera out on the street right now. And I think that's, um, that should be the most important thing, but it's easy to kind of forget that sometimes. Yeah. Cause there's, there's a freedom that, 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 that comes with letting go of the outcome. Yeah. And I think it's just the, the nature of our, uh, our culture, uh, that it's always about, the end result is all that matters, mm-hmm. you know, and the journey, if you can get there with a shortcut, you know, that's great, you know, but it loses sight of what, what, the, what the experience is. Cause for me, when I'll go out there, my only goal, anytime I go out and shoot is to make one, uh, one picture that's unlike a picture that I would have made the day before. Mm. It doesn't necessarily have to have worked to be marvelous, but I see something in there. I go, Ooh, that's interesting. I'll need to explore that more because if all I did was go out and made the same images that I've made in the past, that to me is just like, ugh. yeah, you know, I, I enjoy I enjoy it, but that's, that's, that's the goal. And even if I don't come with a photograph that I think is exceptional, that's okay. Because the pleasure, like you said, it's being out there being in the moment, experiencing those, those, those moments of discovery and going, ooh, ooh, ooh. You know, you get so excited and you're, and you're doing everything you can to do, to create an interesting composition of what's being presented to you. It's like a, I, I, it's a gift. Yeah. You know, and it's the, 
the the appreciation of the gift is not the photograph. It's me being in the moment. Yeah. Yeah. That's um, kind of almost the whole point of of doing it when you get right down to it. Because, I mean, <laughs> you kind of look at what the opposite of that would be, which is just like data entry or something. Like you're doing the same thing over and over and over again, and there's no creativity involved with it. And it's like the end result is all that matters in that instance because you're just trying to get mm-hmm. this data into that spreadsheet or whatever it is. And the process just sucks. It's a grind and yeah. it's boring and you got to find ways to not fall asleep when you're doing it. But photography, it shouldn't be all about the end result because the process is so, it's so rad. I mean, for, for lack of a better term, it's just, mm-hmm. it's such a, a pleasure to take photos and no process is identical no two times you go out and take pictures is identical it's like it's like the opposite of data entry you're going out there and you have the world at your fingertips to do anything you want and you have to be paying attention and it's stimulating and it's creative and it's it's fun so yeah as i'm talking about it now it seems almost stupid to let the end result taint that in any way because it's kind of like you have this beautiful, amazing process that's filling your time right now that you could be doing any other boring ass thing that we do the rest of the day. <laughs> you could be watching Netflix yeah. zoned out right now. You could be doing data entry. You could be, you know, cleaning the bathroom, but you're out doing this amazing, fun thing. And you're caught up in, is the picture going to be received well by everyone that I show it to? Like it's such a, it's such a sad thing to have it tainted with that. But in, you know, the modern world of likes and everything, it's really hard to not let that taint things sometimes. At least it is for me. I was, I was talking to um, a, 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 a gentleman who owns a, a digital, digital lab for printing. And he was telling me the, telling me the, the reality of all these, um, well, a good number of young people who are shooting film, they'll uh, take their film to the lab they'll, and they'll get a scan, but they'll never pick up their negatives. Yeah. Yeah. So they're just working from these low res scans that they're putting up on social, and this film, the lab just ends up having to throw it away because they can't, they can't, they can't keep it. And I just, I just, yeah. When a lab told... Just shook my hand. It was just like... My, my local lab told me the same thing. It hadn't even occurred to me that you wouldn't want your negatives back. And they're like, yeah, we have this whole box we're shredding today. It's like, what? Like, you don't want to hold on to this tangible thing that you... Like, I don't know. I feel like I have a connection to my film. Once I... Like this Spain trip I went to, like, I ushered it all the way to Spain. I took pictures on it. I ushered it all the way home. I loaded it into the camera myself. I almost have like an emotional connection to the film itself. Um, mm-hmm. But yeah, it's it's funny. Modern workflows are a lot more varied yeah. than I realized. I've been a huge fan of the Charcoal Book Club from the moment that I found out about them. Jesse Lenz, who is the founder, is not just a publisher. He is a photographer and a lover of photography books. 
He understands that a monograph is more than just a collection of banger shots sandwiched between covers. He chooses books that exemplify careful curation and thoughtful design. Titles like Youth Without Age and Life Without Death by Laura Panic and The Good Citizen by Benjamin Rasmussen are just a few of the wonderful examples of what a great monograph can be. There's a reason why so many titles offered by the club sell out. A wonderful and a great photo book provides me with a lasting experience, one that I can return to over and over again, years after I first turned its pages. I can't say that about a camera or a lens. I recommend highly that you visit their website and see what they've offered in the past and what's coming up for you next. You won't be disappointed. With your membership, you receive a quality monograph each month. The book reflects a diversity of genres, photographers, and styles that you will enjoy even if you don't practice that particular genre of photography. And if you don't like that month's release, you can choose an alternative book of equal value in their catalog. They offer free shipping to the U.S., Canada, and the U.K. It's subsidized elsewhere. Sign up today and use the promo code Frame at checkout to enjoy 10% off your first membership payment. And thank you for supporting The Candid Frame after all these years and over 600 episodes. A lot of time and effort goes into producing these shows, and your financial contributions helped us to pay all the necessary bills to make that happen. I hope that we've played a small role in your photographic journey, and if it has in any significant way, please make the choice to become a Patreon supporter today. You can contribute $5, 10 $20 or more a month by visiting patreon.com forward slash The Candid Frame. Again, it's patreon.com forward slash The Candid Frame. Thanks. Your, your journey to become a, a working photographer is not an easy one for you. Um, there were several no. times where you thought that it wasn't going to work out, that you were basically were going to quit. Um, talk to me about that, and what do you think allowed you to persist long enough to start actually making a career as a, as a photographer? Yeah, it was ni neither easy nor cheap pursuing it. Um, but in, uh, in high school, you know, when you start kind of, having to figure out colleges and stuff like that. Um, I just, I don't know, it's going to sound cliche because I know everyone looks around in high school and says, I'm not like these people. And you know, everybody has that feeling, but mm -hmm. I really had it. Like I did not, I, I didn't want to go to school dances. I didn't, I, I hated the whole thing. I, ha I hated being a kid. I hated not being able to have the freedom that an adult has. I hated, um, I don't know, I hated everything about it. And I just was kind of eager to start my life in a career rather than going to college and kind of continuing this school trajectory that I didn't really enjoy. Um, I was a good student. The, the actual acad academics of it I enjoyed. I, I like learning and everything, but the social parts of it and the, I don't know, all the stuff that comes with going to school I didn't like. So I didn't want to go to college. Um, and at that point, I was getting real into photography. And I was the photographer on the yearbook, uh, or not the yearbook, the newspaper. And um, it was kind of starting to make sense where, well, photographer is kind of a non, 
traditional career path. I feel pretty non-traditional because I don't want to go get a degree in something that I don't really have any interest in. So maybe I'll pursue photography. So um, I graduated high school and just started working a regular job to save up money to basically go out and become a professional photographer. And um, I had no idea how to do that. So I ended up burning through everything I saved up. I ended up going pretty heavily into debt. I lived at home with my parents way longer than anyone was in my class. Um, I wouldn't be surprised if I was the last one to move out from my parents' house because um, I was just so desperately trying to get my business off the ground that I didn't have any money for anything else. Um, and yeah, just learned everything on how to run a business by doing it the wrong way first and then uh, eventually kind of fell into it. Um, teaching kind of saved me from throwing in the towel, I will say that, because I was trying to become like a commercial photographer, but I didn't want to shoot weddings or people or portraits or anything like that. And I didn't really know any other way I could make money as a professional photographer that would actually be conducive to how I like to take pictures. Um, so I started teaching people just how to use their cameras and, uh, you know, retirees and stuff that got a new DSLR and they want to take pictures of their grandkids and they barely know how to turn it on. So I'm teaching them how to control the autofocus and a lot of mundane stuff like that. But, um, it got enough money in the door that I didn't have to throw in the towel. And eventually that got big enough to where it was actually a full fledged business and I had to get my own. Uh, classroom. So I got my own classroom and um, it just kind of grew on its own because there was a really high demand for that at the time. This was probably in 2000, I'd say between like 2009 and 2018, like that stretch. Digital cameras were really coming in strong and a lot of people were getting cameras they had no business getting because they were way above their pay grade. <laughs> and like, so there was just a lot of complex cameras out there and a lot of people that uh, got one for Christmas and realized it's way more complex than they thought. So that kept me busy for quite a long time. Um, but eventually I got a little burned out on teaching because I was going, going a little too hard on it, um, not giving my own photography enough attention. So uh, I wanted to try and kind of pivot not completely out of teaching, but just a little bit away from it. Um, so I started looking at, now that I was more mature as a photographer and more mature as a business owner, I started looking at it more maturely. Like what's, um, what's a genre of commercial photography that I could actually do with the skills I have, I could do with the equipment I have, and that would work well with my personality. Like I like to work alone. I don't like to photograph people because I, I'm not good at directing people. And that whole interaction is very awkward to me. So I'm just, I, that kind of ruled out everything. <laughs> like it ruled out weddings, it ruled out portraits, it ruled out, you know, <laughs> it like, it ruled out so many things and kind of all that was left was photographing buildings. Um, so I kind of started asking around, uh, through connections at my local, photography lab and photography store. I'd been going there so long. I knew everybody there and, uh, kind of started putting my feelers out. Are there any 
architectural or real estate photographers out there that would let me tag along to see if it's something that's going to work for me. And um, luckily, there was someone looking for uh, someone to come on and take on some of the extra work. And I've been working with him ever since. So now, uh, now my business is kind of half photographing buildings and half everything else, YouTube teaching, uh, selling prints and zines and all that. So, so tell me about the, the, the photographs that you're taking for these architectural, uh, these architectural buildings, offices, yeah. whatever, whatever, whatever they are. Uh, let's, could you be a little more specific in terms of what kind of work? Cause there's a bunch of subgenres in that. And yeah, how, how are the images used? So I like to call myself an architectural photographer because I hate calling myself a real estate photographer. <laughs> so that's ultimately what I am. I'm a real, I'm a real estate photographer, but <laughs> not to denigrate any real estate photographers, but a lot of the residential real estate photography has gotten so shitty over the years. And I hate to lump myself in with a lot of the real estate, residential real estate photography I see. But um, I do commercial real estate, so it's all office buildings, um, industrial buildings, and retail centers. A lot more industrial buildings these days since COVID hit because mm -hmm. uh, everything's turning into distribution centers and office buildings are not occupied anymore. So that whole market's gotten really weird. Um, so new industrial buildings, the oldest shitty industrial buildings you can imagine. Sorry for cussing. Is it okay to cuss on the uh, yeah, podcast fine. here? Okay. Um, so I, I shoot such a wide gamut. I'll shoot some really high end, awesome class A office building one day. And then the next day I'm shooting an industrial building that needs to be bulldozed or <laughs> leveled because it's just an eyesore and it's probably riddled with cockroaches and rats. So I, I run a really wide gamut and then these pictures are used to sell the building. Um, so it gets, it's kind of a, a, a weird line of work to be in because you I get hired by the real estate agency, but the owner of these buildings don't want anyone to know that the building is for sale. I'm still kind of unclear why I think mm. tenants can kind of freak out if the building's going to be put up for sale. So um, they're like always giving really strong orders of make sure the photographer doesn't tell anyone on site that it's for sale. So I often have to make stuff up when I'm there of like tenants are asking, why are you taking pictures? I'm like, I don't know. They didn't tell me. I'm just the monkey with the camera. So I have to like kind of skirt my way around having to tell them what it is. Mm. Uh, so there's a lot of weird things to my line of work that have nothing to do with photography. They always want it yesterday. Uh, they don't, they make a lot of mistakes. The client does. I've shown up to buildings where the building wasn't even done yet and they didn't know. Like, I don't know how you have a $15 million industrial building. You're sending me out to take pictures and they don't know it's finished yet. So I guess... I guess that's rich guy problems. They're probably in New York. They, this is part of a yeah. very big portfolio. They have no, no idea that the building's not even done yet. So there's a lot of hassle that comes with it. And that's why they call it architecture photography. But, um, <laughs> you know, it's, uh, it's ultimately commercial real estate. So it's, it's, um, I don't have the luxury of like putting in a lot of work into one hero shot. Like they need 
they need a lot of pictures because they're trying to sell this entire building and I got to show the interior. Uh, I got to show multiple tenants. I got to show the lobby. I got to show the exterior. I got to shoot at day and dusk and it all has to be done in one day. So um, it's a lot more run and gun than I do on my own style of photography, but um, so how would you say me. then? So how would you say that your own personal photography, that is much more um, leisurely, it's you know that's more more yeah. thoughtful. How has that helped the architectural photography and vice versa? I think they kind of. Um, I think each gets me to not go into a full-blown panic attack on the other. Because like if I was mm -hmm. only doing the real estate stuff, and I've had stretches of this where it's so busy that I'm doing just that, and I start to go insane because it's, it's such a fast-paced thing and dealing with the hassles of uh, the client on top of that. And I just start to go nuts. Um, if I have none of that, and it's all my super slow, super nitpicky, one good dust shot for the entire day, that drives me crazy too. Because I start to get too up in my head to where I'm only thinking about every nitpicky little compositional detail. And then even when I come home, it's like I can't talk about anything else with my wife other than what I'm working on. And it's like, that's not healthy. And I need to have, I need to have that balance of like, I go out and do the commercial real estate stuff and I get my like fast yayas out and it switches my brain into a different gear and I have to approach it very differently. And then I also need to go off and do my own work where I can be very slow and methodical about it so I can use that other part of my brain. It's like both parts of the brain, of my brain, need due attention. And if I'm giving too much attention to one, it, everything melts down. So I think they, they play off each other more than anything. Do you have to schedule and commit to yourself that you're going to do that, um, that personal work? Yeah, big time. And it's hard to do because, I mean, everyone's busy in life, you know. Everyone has so much stuff to do. And you see a Saturday on your schedule, and I'm thinking, oh, maybe I'll go out and take pictures that day. And then it's like, oh, well, I really, I should reroute that dryer vent because it's not, it's it's leaking under the house. I, I got to do that. That siding needs to be painted, mm -hmm. and I got I to patch that. And, oh, there's also all the the video editing I got to do for YouTube and stuff. So I, I get to the day and it's so easy to just not do it. So I really have to like force myself. I actually had this uh, just a few days ago cause I, I took one of those days. I said, okay, I'm gonna go out and I'm gonna do, I did two things. I went to a gallery um, exhibit of a painter I really admire and then uh, wanted to go take pictures afterwards just at a, a different city. Um, I went to the gallery showing and then I got to the end. I was like, eh, I don't know, maybe I'll just go home. It's kind of a long drive to where I'm going to go take pictures and eh, it's probably not going to be anything worthwhile there anyway. And I had a moment where I really had to tell myself, I'm like, just go. The drive is a pain in the ass, but 
you'll never regret going, even if you don't get any good pictures, you'll be mm-hmm. happy that you went and checked it out and you scouted it. And so I said, all right, I'll sit in the traffic. I drove another hour and a half and I went to this abandoned Sears um, in uh, it was an hour and a half away. And I'm so glad I went because not only was the sunset amazing, we had this like amazing light and it was cool and everything just went perfect and smooth. But just being out there taking pictures in that slow process, using the cameras I love to use, I could just feel the relaxation like washing over me. And it was just this very low pressure. I don't have to share these pictures with anybody if I don't want to, because I'm not making a YouTube video about it. Like when I make a YouTube video about something, I I have this extra pressure of like, the picture better be good. Because if you put out a YouTube (laughs) video and the picture sucks, that's pretty embarrassing. So I didn't make a YouTube video about it. I just took the pictures for my own enjoyment. And it was the best. It it was every, every bit of therapy I could hope for rolled into like one little evening. So it's important to schedule those times. So why the YouTube channel? Hmm. That's a very good question. (laughs) (laughs) I've said many times before, I'll say it again here, but every time I do a YouTube video, I say, or a a photography on location YouTube video specifically, I say it's the last time I'm going to do it because I I hate the videoing process so much and I hate having to talk to the camera while I'm trying to take pictures. I hate all of it so much. But the results I love so much that I keep doing it um, mm. because I'm, I'm, I'm even still learning how much I enjoy the video editing process. And it allows me to be my nitpicky self in a whole different way. But now it's with timing and with audio and with video and overlays and all this kind of stuff. So I get to, I get to do it. I actually really enjoy it. I end up having to pull myself away from my video editing software because I I get sucked into it and I really want to keep going. Um, so I really enjoy the, the process of making the videos. I really enjoy the end result. Um, it's kind of like having a, a journal of my life, um, that a lot of stuff I probably would have forgotten about. Um, cause I got a really bad memory, but I'll look back at some of my on location videos and it'll kind of take me back to when I was taking the picture and I get to kind of relive, the enjoyment of it. And that's kind of why I started doing it and kept doing it through, you know, before it was popular. Now that it's popular, it's nearly impossible to walk away from because it leads to such amazing opportunities. I, I, I honestly can't believe how lucky I am to, to have this YouTube thing in my life because it's led to this Spain trip, which was the most incredible trip of my life. Um, absolute dream job. And that definitely would not have happened without this YouTube channel. Um, But also I can take a picture and people actually see it. You know, it's like one of the most discouraging things about being a photographer in the beginning is like you take a photo and you love it and you're so proud of it. And it's just impossible to get enough people to even look at it, let alone like it. But you can't get anyone to even see your work because you don't have any connections. So the fact I can like take a picture and I can make a little cute little video about it. And I know 
15,000 people, 20,000 people, whatever it's going to be, will at least see the photo, whether they like it or not. It's such a, uh, it's such an incredible reward that, um, I don't think I could, I could give it up. It's, I I can't believe how lucky I am. (laughs) Are those, are those the people that are spurring you the print sales or is Mm -hmm. this coming from elsewhere? Yeah, I mean, my print sales are entirely because of my YouTube channel. Uh, I, and I'm the first to admit that the only reason anyone knows my work is because of the videos. Um, it's not because of the work. And that can be upsetting sometimes, to be honest. Because um, if I start to dwell on it too much, like, well, am I really a photographer or am I, or am, am I an entertainer? Because I, I didn't set mm-hmm. out to be an entertainer. I don't want to be an entertainer. I, I want to be a photographer. I want to be a respected photographer. That, that's always been my dream. And if people are like, oh, yeah, the, the pictures are good, but the videos, I love the videos. Like, <laughs> that, it's a compliment, but it's also kind of like, well, can you, you know, get a little more emotional about the pictures first? Like, make me feel good about those, and then you can compliment me on the videos, and then I'll feel a little better. But, um, you know, either way, if I'm in a good state of mind, it's I'm okay with it because I love making videos. I, I love the connection I have with people and, you know, sharing my knowledge on the videos and stuff. That's all uh, great stuff too, even if the videos are more important to people than the photos. Yeah. I, I completely understand the, the feeling um, that you just shared about it. Uh, but to my thinking, you know, this is, this is a whole new way of photographers getting themselves in the work out there. It's yeah. it's just like a natural evolution. I think that the um, the democratization of mm-hmm. of being able to get your work out there is is a good thing because I have no doubt that Ansel Adams would have a YouTube channel and a you yeah. know and a website and doing all that stuff, getting his work out there. Um, and though it may not be the quote unquote traditional way of doing it, uh, the fact is traditional ways had a lot of gatekeepers, mm-hmm. you know, yeah. and a lot of obstacles and that a lot of people who are making exceptional work are finding the audiences without having to go through those people and yeah. finding and they're finding the people who appreciate and and want the work. So even though it may not be you know, what we have traditionally conceived as the proper method to become a professional photographer. I don't think it should diminish the work or the work that you put in, nor the work that you produce. Yeah, that's a, that's a very, very good points. Um, I have thought about that too, where I think just, uh, the description, like the one paragraph description of what a professional working photographer is, is very different now from what it was when I started. And I still oh, kind of get yeah. stuck in the old definition, which, you know, the old definition, it's like, oh, if you're a working professional photographer, you're shooting for National Geographic or you're uh, lining up clients, um, multiple clients a week to shoot their products or to shoot uh, their buildings or whatever. but technology has changed everything so much to where there's not that many jobs like that anymore. Um, Mm -hmm. where it's photographer takes pictures for a client 
and then moves on to photographer takes pictures for next client and moves on. It's like almost everybody has to subsidize it in some way with teaching workshops like I did for a long time, teaching online courses like I still do, um, leading tours or having a YouTube channel. So I feel like the definition, the, the one paragraph description of what a quote unquote working photographer or professional photographer is, is most often gonna have something in there that doesn't have anything directly to do with photography. Mm -hmm. um, because it's just a different world now. You gotta kinda diversify a little bit. And to reach a lot of people, um, requires a different product, you know, like selling pictures. There's just not a huge market for that because there's so many people selling pictures because, you know, if you got a nice picture of Yosemite, it's cool, but there's, there's a billion of those taken yesterday. And, you know, a lot of them are pretty good. There's a lot of pretty good photographers out there now. So mm -hmm. it's like, the odds that you're gonna be able to just like take a picture or something and then just sell that picture, it's not like it used to be. It, you know, stock photography is not what it used to be. Shooting for editorial is not what it used to be. Those jobs are still there, but there's just not quite as many of them. Yeah, I was at a, a gallery opening this past weekend and there are prints there that are going for thousands and thousands of dollars, right? Yeah. And I think about, you know, how many of those those photographs that this gallery is selling um, is work that these people are going to be seeing every day, and how much of it is part of a financial portfolio? That once it gets mm. bought, it's never going to get seen. That it just becomes an investment. Oh, and interesting. When people think about, oh, I want to get into galleries and sell stuff for thousands and thousands of dollars, and go on. Yeah, I, I get it. That you know, being able to make an income from having your work out there in that way is, can be very lucrative, and it's, you know, it definitely has its benefits, but it also has, with you know, with uh, several people who I know personally who live in that world, it's also very stressful, right? Mm -hmm. And, and it, but to have people who really want your work because they want to enjoy it, yeah. they, they may not be paying tens of thousands of dollars, but there's something very satisfying that for me personally, that people have purchased prints of my work and I know that's in their house and I know it's hmm. something that they see every day. Um, yeah, that's a really good perspective on it. I haven't thought of it that way because yeah. you're right. I mean, if, if you're, if you're at a level like uh, I always bring up Gregory Crutzen in every interview I do, but I don't follow any photographers and he's one of the only ones I actually look at his work. But, um, you know, he sells pictures for hundreds of thousands of dollars. But yeah, at that point, you kind of have to start to wonder, like, are they buying this because they're looking for a good place to, you know, stash their money in something that's going to be, you know, a good... Mm -hmm long-term investment maybe their kids can sell it when they when they pass on you know are they thinking of it in those terms or is it like i am absolutely in love with this artist's work i need to have it hanging in my house no matter what it costs and i guess it's kind of nice when you're at a level like i'm at i know that everyone buying my print buying my prints although i'm not selling them for nearly those prices and i'm not selling nearly as many of them I'm quite confident every single one that goes out the door is going to someone who 
really enjoys my work or at the very least really enjoyed the video that mm. I made about that, that work. And that's a pretty good feeling. So yeah, I think that's a, you have a very good perspective on it. <laughs> should probably yeah. keep that in mind more. Because the first time I sold a print, it was to a photojournalist who I knew. And there was this shot that I made on Kodachrome Slide. Mm. And I got a Cibachrome made for him for the, for the print. I sold him the, that print. And that meant a tremendous amount to me because, one, I respected his work and the fact that he liked one of my photographs enough that he wanted a print. And that I knew that that print was going to be with him, that it wasn't going to get socked up in, in, in uh, you know, in a closet somewhere, that he was going to yeah. get it framed and he was going to be put it up. And that, that's meant the world to me. And that's always been something I've always remembered when I think about, you know, making a print and sending it to, to, to someone. Um, yeah. You know, the fact that someone else can take some joy from something I had so much joy in creating is very, very satisfying. Yeah. Yeah, it is. And I mean, as I'm sure, you know, just the satisfaction from putting your work into print, you know, and not having it just live on a computer screen. I am so grateful for anyone who gives me an excuse to see the image printed before I send it to them. Like I really do. <laughs> yeah. Like I'll make I'll make the print. I do a lot of my own printing now. And I'll, I'll make the print and I'll, I'll, I'll take a moment to like enjoy it before I box it up. It might only be 60 seconds with the print, but I love that process so much of mm. bringing it onto paper that the fact that someone is willing to pay some money so that I can have that moment with it is reward enough. But the fact that they also want to hang it on their own wall for who knows how many years going forward. That's uh that's the best compliment anyone can get. Yeah, holding holding that print, there's there's there are a few things as satisfying as that. Yeah. And there there used to be um um I guess a television production company that made some sort of sitcom and at the very end um they would have their logo and a child's voice would say, I made this <laughs> you know? Yeah. And that's exactly how I feel. I have that sort of that childish thrill yeah. of going, I made this. Yeah, it does go all the way back to that, doesn't it? Yeah. It's just a much much more expensive modern version of it. I guess. <laughs> 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 well, my last question that I ask each guest is, uh, and though I know you don't look at a lot of photographers' work, I'm still going to ask you the question. Um, uh, I'd like you to recommend a photographer that uh, you would recommend our listeners discover and explore, and it can be anyone, someone you've long admired or someone you've recently discovered. Uh, I always bring up Ben Horn uh, when, that, when a question like that comes up. He, he's also a, um, he has a YouTube channel, but he does large format, I think 8x10 primarily. Um, I bring him up, though, because... I find his work really interesting because he does a lot of uh, uh, landscape and detail shots also on uh, nature, you know, detail shots in 8x10. And it's a lot of photos where if someone described it to you, you'd just be like, okay, yes, yeah, so it's, it's nature photography. I get it. Um, mm -hmm. 
and it, I'm sure it could get shuffled amongst any other nature photographs and I wouldn't know it's, it's Ben Horns. But I don't know how he does it, but his work has a very Ben Horn look to it. Hmm. And the subject matter he's shooting, I'm always a little confused by that because I'm like, that's subject matter I've seen a million people shoot. You know, for example, a bunch of leaves on the ground or something. Something that sounds simple and it's like, how could anyone put their own spin on that when they're just dealing with natural light and it's a leaves on the ground and it's something that is kind of like, well, yeah, anyone with a camera, they would take the same photo of that. Not him. I don't know how he does it, but it, it ends up being like, oh, that's a that's a Ben Horn shot. So I'd say people check him out. Uh, he's the main reason I have a YouTube channel. Um, because he was doing it before anyone else was. Um, but yeah, he's great. Um, and then uh, I always bring up Gregory Crutzen because he's uh, one of my favorites, but a lot of people probably don't um, don't need to be directed to his work. He's pretty well known. And then uh, Andreas Gursky, always my, oh, one yeah. of my all-time favorites. Well, Nick, thank you so much. It was a real pleasure to finally get a chance to meet you and, and talk with you. Pleasure was all mine. Thanks a lot for having me. Thanks to Nick for joining us. Learn more about Nick and his work by visiting nickcarverphotography.com. And if you're a fan of our work, you can write reviews on whatever service you use to listen to podcasts and share a favorite episode on social networks, be it X, formerly Twitter, Facebook, or Instagram. Remember to use the hashtag TheCandidFrame. You can support us financially by contributing via PayPal or Patreon. We've relaunched our newsletter, and if you want to receive updates on everything related to TCF, sign up today. You'll find the link in the show notes or our website. And if you can't find every show episode on whatever service you use to listen to podcasts, download the Candid Frame app, available for Apple iOS and Android. And because of your generosity, it's free to download and use. No additional purchases are required. The Candor Frame's audio engineer is Martin Taylor. You can find at theothermartintaylor.com. The show's senior producer is Cynthia Parker. And this is Ebody and X, and this is The Candid Frame.